So I, I have to say that I think God can ask a lot of hard things of us, but I think the hardest one is when he asks us to wait. And I've had a number of seasons where God has asked me to wait. This church has had seasons where God has asked us to wait, and there's, there's something in us that is so resistant to that. And yet I've come to recognize there's something that God knows about waiting that we can only learn through patient endurance. We can't learn some of these lessons any other way. We can't become a certain kind of people unless we wait, unless we trust. And this really hit home to me in a way I'll, I'll never forget. And I, forgive me if I've shared this story before, but um, coming near the end of my time in seminary, we decided, hey, let's, you know, we've kind of gotten through most of seminary. Why don't, now's a good time to start having kids. We're kind of inching our way towards 30, and you all know how everything changes once you get to your 30s. Um, and we thought, it wasn't really a joke, but it's kind of a joke. Uh, you know, and we thought, seminary is a fertile place. Kids are, people are constantly having kids all over the place. Like, you never think, oh, this is going to be hard for us. Uh, and then months started to go by, one month and then two, and then four, and then eight. And we had had a number of conversations along the way. Maybe God just doesn't want this for us. As much as we want to have our own kids that uh, look like us, have the same manner, all of that, all of those desires, why we want to have kids of our own, we started thinking, maybe God just doesn't want this for us. And one reason why I know God pushes us into seasons of waiting is because it pulls out things like that. That's when I started to recognize how often in my life I look around at what other things that other people have, that He has told me to wait or not now or that's not for you, and how quickly I go, God wants other people to have that but not me. God wants other people to have this good thing but not me, which turns into this really weird spiritual pity party. And that wouldn't have been pulled out of me unless God had said, no, you're going to wait. I'm not going to give this to you right away. You have to trust. And it, it was a tough season for us. It was hard. Uh, in a time when all kinds of people were not trying to have kids and then be like, we're, we're ha- we had three now. Um, it's funny. It's like when you think, hey, I'd love to get this kind of car, and suddenly you see it everywhere. It's like, does everyone in the world have this car now? Is everyone in the world just having babies, just left and right, like they're tacos? (laughs) And then we just so happened to meet a professor at Southern who had also been a retired gynecologist. Uh, He started working with us, not just to help us navigate infertility, but also to help us navigate what's going on in our hearts and the things that we're wrestling with with the Lord. And all this time, we hadn't told anyone, by the way. Whitney usually shares everything with her family, hadn't even told them this, hadn't told my family. Uh, And it came around about Christmas time, we went to go visit my parents in Michigan, and we both thought, you know, we just, we should just tell them that we've been trying and that it's been almost a year and just nothing. Uh, So we go, we sit them down, we say, hey, we just want you guys to know, we've been trying to get pregnant for almost a year, and we just haven't. And we don't know if it's going to happen, but we're kind of thinking maybe we'll start the adoption process. Um, not as plan B. We've always wanted to adopt. We still would like to adopt, but uh, we're starting to think maybe God's just pushing us in that direction. 
Nine months later, Noah's born. Our little, as I like to say, our 10-pound wrecking ball of a son comes barreling into the world. And I have since many times reflected on how, what I learned throughout that season of waiting and how much it pushed me into prayer and pushed me into seeking God and pushed me to recognize all of the ways that I don't trust God, all of the ways that I don't really know Him, even though I had been to Bible college and I was finishing seminary, I knew a lot about God. But He had pushed me into the season where He said, you are going to learn to walk with me, not as an idea, not as an abstract notion, not as a theological construct, but me as the living God, you're going to learn to walk with me. And there's something about waiting, it's the only way we tend to learn that. And the thing is, it's not isolated incidents. It's not just one-offs that a couple of us, he, he has been doing this with his people since the beginning. God has called people, whether an individual or groups of people, he will call them and then he'll make them wait. He'll make a promise to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Ten years later, he's going, did you forget? Because I'm getting close to a hundred. Jesus leaves the church, and we looked at this last week, where Jesus leaves the church and he says, not many days from now, you will be filled with power. And Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, and as we continue this series, laying the pillars of what we want this church to be about moving forward. We recognize the importance of prayer last week and how the church, having left this really spiritual experience, comes back into the ordinary places of life and they do the only thing they can do, which is to pray. And it's 50 days after this moment when we start to see something happen. But Luke presents it to us in a way that we don't feel those 50 days. We just know the church comes down from the Mount of Olives, they go to this place that they would always gather in, and they just pray. And then the next thing we know, we're in Acts chapter 2, and the events that we're going to look at this morning. But what's important for us to remember is that there is, there is something powerful that God recognizes about waiting. In fact, waiting is the way that God builds His kingdom. Which seems so counterintuitive to us because... Uh, especially as Americans, I read this study one time uh, in a, a journal of quantitative studies, which to you might sound super interesting. To me, sounded horribly boring. Uh, not a numbers guy. But they did this study on the work habits of not only Americans, but compared it to uh, workers in Germany, in Italy, and in France. I don't remember how they picked those. But they found that Americans worked 50% more than Germans, the French, and Italians combined. We have an addiction to work. We love to feel productive. And I know I've even shared here that when I, and I have those days where I feel like, man, I got nothing done. I feel like I am just a failure as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, because there's still all these boxes on my to-do list. We tie so much of our identity, not just as individuals, but as churches into what we do and what we get accomplished. And then God, in His wisdom, pushes us into these seasons where He said, look, you're going to be about building my kingdom. I'm going to use you to reach people. Now, here's, here's what I need you to do. Nothing. And so we do what we do, and we go, well, you know, maybe, maybe we, He just wants us to try some stuff. And so we get busy trying, and we, 
sometimes it's great, sometimes it's really wise ideas, and other times it's like, what is, what is this? This is the weirdest thing. But we just, we need to feel productive. We need to feel like we're doing something here. So God does to us what he did to the early church, and he just says, you just got to stop, and you got to do nothing, and you got to wait for me. And we looked at that in detail last week, just at how when God wants to use his people, when he's preparing them for something, he tells them to wait. Now, the church waited in prayer. And it's important for us to, even though these are separate messages, to recognize that the way Luke is writing this story, he wants to connect them together. And so while I'm not going to belabor the first point, we need to revisit that some because for Luke, these two things are connected. It's not just, well, we got nothing else to do, so we'll just pray until God figures it out. No, these two events are combined. Yes, God was the one who had to send the Holy Spirit on his people, but he also said, you need to pray. And I don't have an explanation for that mystery about, well, which, which one is it? Is God the one that does it, and so we just sit around? Or is it our prayer that makes things happen? I don't know. And Scripture doesn't try to explain that. We just know that God rules over all things, but he tells us, hey, you need to pray, and you need to seek my face, and you need to trust me that only I can do these things. And so that's what the early church does, and that for us, the reminder that the Spirit moves after we pray. The Spirit moves after we wait. We wait on Him and we trust in Him that here they were having this tremendous spiritual experience. They had just seen the Lord risen from the dead and spent all of these days with Him. They watch Him go back up into heaven and then they spend the next seven weeks just... I mean, we're, we don't really know. Luke writes it in such a way that the sense is that they continued to meet and to pray, but they just kind of went about their lives. It wasn't like this 50 days of 24-7 prayer. They just kind of did life, and they worked, and they spent time together, they prayed, they gathered. But the result is pretty remarkable. The Spirit came after this season of waiting, and for us, even though it does not let us in on kind of what they're thinking, how they're feeling. I have to imagine that after seven weeks, I would start to wonder, maybe God changed his mind. Maybe Jesus got back up there and the angels had made a mess of things and he's going, I was gone for 30 years. What happened? What did you got? What were you up to while I was gone? We can start to think, oh, maybe he got busy or maybe he just, he wants to do something else and I'm just not a part of that. All it takes is just a little bit longer than we think it should, and we start to question his promises. We start to question his character. Is he really going to do what he said he would? All it takes is a couple failed projects and losing some key momentum, and you start to wonder, was this whole church thing a mistake? Should we still keep trying to do this? And yet, I know that, again, part of the waiting, part of the delays, because God wants us, He wants to do more than just do things for us. He wants to make us a different kind of people. And sometimes the way that you have to change is you've got to get some stuff out of you. You can't just let it sit in there and fester. There are things that can grow in us that 
there's no other way to get rid of them. Sometimes you can take some medicine and it'll kill an infection, but sometimes you've got to go in there and you've got to take it out. And that can be painful. And the recovery can be difficult. But it's the only way. It's the only way that you can be healthy again. It's the only way that you can get back to that kind of life that God wants for you. So God, in His wisdom and in His waiting, He knows the only way to do this is for you to wait, for you to trust, for you to seek Me. And that's what the church does. And that's what I think we are in this season now where we're now seeking the Lord, waiting to see what He does, waiting to see what He wants to do. What's going to happen next? And here's what's interesting is that they waited, they prayed, they did it together. The ways that we tend to wait because we want to, we want to look like we still have it together even though we all know that we're waiting for God to do something is we'll wait alone. All that stuff that God's pulling up, well, I just do that like maybe in my journal but usually in my car. And on a bad day, I scream it at the windshield. But I don't, want, I don't want them to see it. We, we have to get rid of some of that. Because one, it's just not healthy. Trying to present that picture like, I have it, to, every part of my life totally together isn't really good for any of us. But also, it's just not true. And what the early church did that, remind, that is spectacular to me is that they learned to wait together. Because like we looked at last week, they were united in prayer, Luke says, and that they were together in everything. And that these two words are strong words. That they weren't just kind of loosely associated, but they were together and they weren't going anywhere. And it might be that we still have to learn a little bit on how to wait well together. How to trust each other with the things that God is pulling out of us. And I know that there's been a lot of great conversation about what this looks like through the studies on Saturdays and what what does a meaningful community look like? What do meaningful relationships look like? And some of it is we just have to be willing to learn how to fight well together. We have to be willing to trust that I can let people into what's going on in here and that they're not just going to smash it or assume horrible things about me. Learning to wait on God looks like learning to wait well together. But here's what happens. That when the Spirit comes, when we commit to seeking God together, when we commit to being united together through prayer, and the Spirit comes, He does something spectacular. And a lot of times when people look at Acts chapter 2, they focus just on one particular part of it and make it, turn it into a whole discussion about what gifts of the Spirit are still operable for us and what should we expect And while that's a valuable discussion, I don't think it's uh, Luke's point. What Luke is wanting to present to us is that when the Spirit of God is working, when He is working in His people and through His people, He makes the gospel intelligible to people that it shouldn't make any sense to. That the Spirit comes to help us speak their language. And that after all of these 50 long, grueling, confusing days, the wind begins to blow. And Luke tells us that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And that for Luke to say that this was from heaven is meant to remind us that this is, this is Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit. That it has come from the same place that Jesus just went to. That uh, 
who were also told that this mighty rushing wind had come into this same place and that dividing tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And so we have to ask, why fire and why tongues? Why in all of the things that God the Holy Spirit could decide to do when He finally descends, not just on particular individuals, but the whole church, why would He come as flaming tongues? It seems like the weirdest thing possible. Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, that fire was a common picture of God's presence. We all know the story of Moses being called to deliver Israel from Egypt and the way that Yahweh revealed Himself to Moses after 40 years of being a shepherd was a bush consumed with fire. And that this picture of God as a consuming fire is so, no pun intended, burned into the minds of God's people that in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will actually say in chapter 11 that our God is a consuming fire. And John the Baptist, when he is telling the people about Jesus and the coming Messiah and what he will do, how the Messiah will be different than John the Baptist, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the fire is a picture of God fulfilling all of these promises, all of these expectations, and yet in all of his fullness of his presence and his power, God is there. That this spirit that has fallen on the church is the very presence of God. It's not something lesser than God. It is God who has come to his people. And the tongues part, why is that? Well, shortly after these couple verses in uh, verse 4, Luke tells us that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. And this language of being filled with the Spirit, it, it marked off a unique experience of the Spirit. It happens a couple times in the Old Testament. Uh, one with Moses and later the 70 elders that uh, he sort of commissions to help him lead the people. That they, He prays for them and they are filled with the Spirit. When the day comes that they're building the tabernacle, there was a chief uh, artisan who was named Bezalel who was filled with the Spirit to be able to not just create all of the elements to make up the tabernacle, but to lead the rest of the team of people who would contribute wood and fabric and gold and whatever it might be. Uh, we're told when both Saul and David were anointed kings that the Spirit of God rushed on them and filled them. It's a way to signify a setting apart for a particular task, uh, but also a commission to particular action. And yet here in this moment, rather than specific individuals being filled with the Spirit, it's the entire church. And Paul describes it in Ephesians 5 as something that is spectacular, but to us seems ordinary. Because he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, and then goes on to describe that as singing spiritual songs and hymns and uh, songs to each other and giving thanksgiving to the Lord. It looks like what we do on a Sunday. It is a worship gathering, and Paul's saying that is a picture, partial picture of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And this is different than when we come to faith in Jesus, and Paul and others will talk about being baptized in the Spirit. These are distinct things, and I, I don't want to get into the distinctions, but uh, when someone comes to faith, 
Scripture speaks of them being baptized. This is the initial coming to faith. But then there is this language Paul uses of being filled that seems to indicate kind of the continual process throughout your life of submitting to the Spirit and letting Him work through you. And that for Peter in the early church, what this looked like, being filled with the Spirit, was it was spectacular in the moment, but it was also a pretty simple thing. Because the crowds that had gathered around them were from all over the known world. And Luke lists them out in this long series of verses to try to communicate to us that these people should not be able to understand the disciples in the early church. They spoke way too many different dialects, way too many different accents, way too many different languages, and them all being brought into Jerusalem in this one moment, and all of them understanding with the same clarity and the same significance that they can hear these people and understand what they're saying, they know this shouldn't make any sense to us. And this is the spectacular part. Not that they were having this ecstatic experience, but that all of these diverse people who should not be able to relate to each other, that the world would say, these people don't have anything to do with each other. That when the Spirit fell on the church, all of them were able to understand the good news of Jesus. And when the Spirit comes, He helps us to speak the language. And I remember this landed really clear to me one time. Whitney and I were working with uh, an apartment ministry in an apartment building inside the loop. Uh, And it was a place where there were people from all over the world who had come to the United States, come to Houston to work in oil and gas. And so our job was to kind of create a sense of community among the residents, which helps the apartment as a business because... When they feel like they belong, retention rates go up. Uh, for us, it was a ministry to reach people that maybe we otherwise wouldn't get to know. And we had neighbors from Germany, from Brazil, from uh, all sorts of East Asian countries, from Africa, Western Europe, all over the place. And I'll never forget, we met this one couple. They were from South America, had moved all over the world, and had landed back in Houston. Um, older than us, not a young couple, uh, empty nesters. And we just came, welcomed them, they invited us in, we just started talking. And, you know, one of, so one of the challenges of being a pastor is that inevitably when you meet somebody new, it's like the second question they ask you is, oh, what do you do? And when you say you're a pastor, uh, it can kill the conversation really, really fast. And I even had a guy one time, I met him in the same apartment building, introduced each other. He says, what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm a pastor. He, kid you not, doesn't even say anything, just turns and walks away. Uh, Which was more funny to me than anything else. I didn't really take it personally. But leading up into that moment, I will be honest, there's always a little bit of anxiety that comes up like, I don't want this to come up so soon. I need you to see I'm a normal person first. Uh, Well, it's kind of normal. And... um, but inevitably it came up, and I said, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh, great, well, where? And at the time, I was working with a, a church in the Heights, and I said, well, you know, it's this church up the street a little bit from where we were, uh, you know, right off of Maine and whatever. And she goes, oh, that's great. I know that place. And I'm thinking, oh, thank God, like, okay. Someone who's at least, you know, maybe a, a Christian, like, I don't have to be worried about anything. Um, and she says, oh, I know exactly where that is. And I go, oh, you do? And she said, yeah, my, 
uh, the Buddhist temple I go to is, you know, right around the street from there. So, like, I pass by it all the time, uh, which totally threw me off, I'll admit, because I had assumed, you know, you assume things. And she didn't look like she'd be Buddhist. Um, and so I mumbled out something like, oh, that's, so how's meditation going for you? And the thing is, you know, I had been through Bible college, I'd been through seminary, I'd taken more apologetic classes than I had cared to. I'd been to a Christian high school, and that's like all they push on a worldview, and you got to know all the answers all the time. And in that moment, all of that failed me because it wasn't an, an idea sitting in front of me, it was a flesh and blood person. And I realized that I needed more than ideas to engage with a person. The instruction and the training could help me engage an idea, but here's this woman sitting across from me, building her life around something I knew lots of facts about, but I didn't know how to talk to her. And I didn't have the experience of talking to people who were from different religions or none at all to be able to navigate this well. And so it was just really awkward, and I kind of stumbled through it and never even got to share the gospel with them. And leave... But I've never forgotten that moment because it drove home to me the importance of I don't need more ideas. I don't need to read more apologetics books. I had taken a, a whole unit in a class on Buddhism. I knew facts about it, but I didn't need that in that moment. I needed the Spirit of God to help me connect to this woman and what he was doing in her and bring Jesus to her. I needed the Spirit of God to help me show this woman I know I'm a pastor, and I know that you're in a completely different place, but that I still have something that can give you the love that you're searching for, that can give you the purpose that you don't feel like you have, that can get rid of all of those weights that you're trying to get off of your shoulders through meditation, that peace that you look at these people and you think, man, those Buddhists have some peace, but when you get in there, you can't ever seem to shut it off. Only the Spirit of God can help me connect with what He's doing in her and bring Jesus to this woman who needs Him so desperately. And that's what is happening here. It's not so much that we can just show up in a foreign country and go, all right, Holy Spirit, i got to talk to these people or else I'm not getting out of this airport. So, teach me French. What's happening is the Spirit of God wants the gospel to go to every corner of the world and he will exercise his power to make sure it makes sense. And so that we, I, I, I have to tell you, I feel in my bones God wants this church to grow. So much so that even as Mark and I were praying this morning before the service, I'm praying that God doubles this church in six months. Which I know, we all kind of feel like, Yes, that would be great. Oh, God, that's big. <laughs> and you can tell as I'm stumbling, even trying to get that out, uh, I feel that too. But here's what I'm saying. I don't want to see this church double just so we can say, my church doubled. I'm saying I want to see that many more men, women, and children in this church because I know that even in this moment, he is putting faces and names and neighbors and coworkers and family members on your heart because he is saying to you I want you to pray for those people because it just might be that God is already stirring something in their hearts we don't know it we can't see it but if we could commit to praying for those people 
praying that God would open doors for us to reach those people so that, yes, by April 1st, when we gather, there'll be a lot of strange faces here because God has done something incredible. And that may feel daunting to you, but that excites me to think that God could be doing that. That God could be working through us like that, through the simple act of prayer and His Spirit filling us as a church, that the gospel would be intelligible to all of these, not just people out there, the mass of humanity, but the friends and neighbors, those faces in your mind right now, that He would make it make sense to them. That is beautiful, and that is incredible, and that is a wonderful thing. But I also know that the thing that we wrestle with is Church growth has gotten a weird association with it. And so when we talk about wanting to see the church grow, we can kind of put all of these other things together and we go, well, we don't know that we want to be this kind of church or we want to do music like that or we have to do things this way to get our church to grow. That's not what I'm saying. When I talk about the church growing, what I mean by that is that we want to so pursue God and so be free with the gospel and sharing it to anybody through any means possible that God is starting to bring men and women and children to faith. That our church would grow because healthy things grow. I know that because every day it seems like I have to buy my sons new pants. Because they won't stop growing. Which is kind of a problem because we don't have unlimited funds, but it's a good problem to have because I don't want my sons to be the size of toddlers their entire life. Because I want my sons to grow to full stature. Because I know the day that, like, when I was a teenager and my dad used to remind my brother and I that we spent almost as much on the mortgage as we do on food, he would say that partially going, you guys eat a lot, but also as a, in his heart he knew, my sons are growing, they're healthy, and I love this, and I'll spend twice as much if I, as, if I have to. I want my sons to grow. I want them to be healthy, and I want them to be strong. I know that's going to cost me something going to cost me money. It's probably going to lead to a lot of bruises. It already does because they love to wrestle. But I want my sons to be healthy. I want them to grow. I want them to have friendships and meaningful relationships. I want them to know their God and go hard after whatever picture God has for their life, even if it's totally the opposite of what I think they should do. Because I know that way there is tremendous fruit, there is tremendous freedom, there is a purpose and joy in life when we can throw off all of the cultural expectations when we talk about growth, and we can just go after God. And we can share His heart, because here's the thing, the Spirit doesn't just come to then create kind of this group that just meets in prayer, isolated from the world. The Spirit comes so that the gospel makes sense to those who are far from Him, so that the church grows. Because that's the result of what happens. I don't have time to go into Peter's whole sermon. There's, you could spend weeks just examining all of the insights that the Spirit is giving him about the Scriptures and how Jesus fulfills all of it and how you need to trust in Him now. Suffice it to say that all of this suddenly makes sense to everybody who's there. And that our third point, that the Spirit comes to expand God's kingdom. Because the Spirit has just descended on God's people, all of them. And they are declaring the good news of Jesus in this incredible worship service that they didn't plan to have, but they're now having. The Spirit is on them and filling them 
And the result, number one, is that Peter goes from this impetuous denier of Christ to a fearless proclaimer of Jesus in just an instant. And he is not just declaring the gospel. He's saying, you killed him, and now you need to trust him because he is raised from the dead and he's ruling over heaven and earth. That's a bold thing to say to a bunch of people that you don't know. But what's the result of that? In verse 41, let me back up, verse 37, that this mass of humanity brought from all four corners of the world, every tribe, nation, and tongue, every skin color that you can imagine, they all have the same response. Luke tells us they were cut to the heart, and they said, what shall we do? So Luke tell, or Peter tells them, be baptized and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So that in this one moment, this one act of the Spirit falling on God's people as they have sought Him in prayer, and they are now declaring the good news of Jesus that 3,000 in one day came to trust Jesus Christ. And when I realized that, when I recognized that is what God did, and a group of people that had no resources, they had no great social standing, they had no influence, they had no money, they had no marketing schemes, they didn't have anything. They just trusted and they prayed. And 3,000 people came to trust Him. 3,000 men and women came to know Jesus through one event, through one work of God's Spirit. That starts to make me feel like, Lord, maybe doubling in six months is too small. Maybe there's more people you want us to reach. Maybe there's more men and women that you're working in, and if we could just connect the dots, God, you would do something incredible. That seems like, that seems like maybe, like C.S. Lewis said, maybe my desires are too small. That doesn't mean that I'm going to say, God, then bring three thousand. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying for us together to pray that God would work in that way, that our, our Sunday gatherings would double in six months, we know that that's, that's a pretty easy thing for God to do. What feels like, ah, yeah, He could do that, but is He going to do it for us? If He could save 3,000 people through one impromptu sermon from a guy who denied Him countless times, and he constantly had to be telling him, Peter, can you knock it off? Can you chill out? Can you just ease up a little bit? Then I'm pretty sure a couple 30, 40, 50 people for us is not a problem for him. And I, I actually want us to do something. I don't want to just talk about this. I want us to do something. Uh, I want you to take, if you've got it, this piece of paper that's in here. If you don't, there's a bunch more back there. And I want you to take the back of it. And whatever names or faces came to mind, as we're talking about, God, grow this church. Fill us with your spirit so that the gospel would make sense. Connect us to those that you're working in. Those names, those faces that come to mind, I want you to write them down. And we're going to put them up here. And when this, in ending our service, we are together in prayer, going to pray for these names and faces. We're going to pray for these people. And we're going to ask God, do something. Work in these people's lives. If you need pens, Evan's got some pens. 
I want us to write these down because, number one, that helps us to remember. And I want us to write them down and put them up here because it's important for all of us to be in this together. And because it is as simple as it is, a small act of faith, that God, we are asking you to reach these people right here. And we're going to pray for them on those Sunday mornings when we get together and we pray before our worship gathering. We're going to pray over these pieces of paper. And we're going to pray over these names. And we're going to ask God to continue to work. And see what He does. See the doors that He opens. See how His Spirit helps us to be able to speak the gospel to these people. And we don't know this list could totally change and the people He saves are not on this, this, these lists. But we'll keep praying for them. Maybe he, prays that he saves these and more. I don't know. I'm totally willing to let him change the script. But this is a way to make this hope, to make this faith, to make this trust in God to do what only he can do tangible. And that as time goes on and we see God work in these people's hearts and minds, we can start to cross them off and say, Lord, this is how you saved this person. This is how you redeemed this family. This is how you brought them to yourself. And we begin to celebrate these stories. And there's no magic number. It could just be one person. It could be ten. Whoever comes to mind, just trust that God is leading you to put these people down and, as a church to begin to pray for them. And so, I'm going to close the sermon. And y'all can keep writing names down if you're thinking. Uh, I will spend some time in prayer for us. Uh, band can come up and lead us in a song and then as we close that as you're done just come and lay them up here and that in closing we will pray for these and then we will be sent out uh, to share that good news with those he brings across our path so let me pray for us and if you're still writing it's totally fine Jesus will still hear the prayer if you're writing Lord Jesus we thank you that you have not left us to this work by ourselves but from the very beginning, you have committed yourself to be with us, to be in us, to fill us, to empower us, to do the work that you want to do in this world. I pray, God, that you give all of us as a church and as individuals a kingdom vision for what you're doing in Pearland, in Houston, and beyond. I pray that you would give us that burden, Lord, to pray as individuals and a church for these names, for these families, for these people that you have brought to mind. To trust, God, that you can use those prayers and that you can act in incredible ways. Lord, I do pray that you would so fill each of us that when we get opportunities to share the gospel with these friends and neighbors, that, Lord, even if we feel like we're stumbling, even if we're barely stringing together the sentences and we don't know how to respond, that, Lord, you are still making Jesus make sense to them, that you are still stirring in their hearts. And they realize when we say the name Jesus and we tell them, if you trust him, you can have new life. That connects with what you're doing in their heart. God, give us a burden, a deep burden for these people. And Lord, I do pray that as we step out in faith, God, you would strengthen our faith to such a degree that we would know and step out in confidence that God, you can reach these people, that you can double this church in six months through reaching all of these men and women and children to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. No gimmicks, no cheesy church stuff, just the power of God. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to happen here. 
not just so that you are glorified, but Lord, so that we can have the incredible joy and uh, new excitement that God is at work, that you are with us, and that we get to be a part of what you're doing. God, fill us with that. Fill us with the faith that what overcomes years of waiting, overcomes the wounds, overcomes the uncertainty that God still wants to use us. God, give us the faith that trusts, that knows you're going to do incredible things. And we get to be a part of it. And we get to celebrate each and every one of those people as you bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. God, we give them to you. And I pray that you would continue to work on us, that your spirit would continue to fill us, pointing us to Jesus so that we can point others to him even as we go from this place in the days and weeks ahead. We ask it all in His name, by the Spirit. Amen.